This is episode 15 of the School for Disruptors. And in this episode, Kimberly and I sit down to talk about teaching. Teaching is what brought us together. It's what made us learn about who the other person was, and it's what continues to bind us in the same profession. And just listening back to this episode, I had a huge smile on my face. We talk about all sorts of things, like the path that brought us to teaching, what we think it means to be a good teacher. We even talked about those mistakes we made in our early years of teaching where we were figuring out who we were and how to connect with students and we were making mistakes. And we laugh, but we also share some really sweet, purposeful moments about why this profession is so important and why teachers are some of the most incredible people out there. And so if you are a teacher and you're listening to this, Know that Kimberly and I think you're amazing. And if you're not a teacher and you're listening to this, I hope you walk away with a bit more understanding of what it's like to be a teacher. And this is our second to last episode of season one. And we just want to thank you for being here, sharing this space with us and continuing to listen. And as always, as we're wrapping up our first season of this podcast that we hold so near and dear to our hearts and we're planning for our second season, we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what your takeaways are and what you hope for from future episodes, what you've learned, what you'd like to see more of. And just even dropping by to say hi and that you are listening means so much to us. So thanks for being here and we hope you enjoy this episode. What happens when two boss women link up for sisterhood and perspective? The School for Disruptors, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Kimberly McLan and Dr. Sarah Goolish. This dope digital space is dedicated to vulnerable conversations about self-awareness, self-definition, and of course, all kinds of disruption. Listen as we inspire each other, and we hope you. Teacher. A person who helps students to acquire knowledge, competence, or virtue. We're going to talk about teaching. I have a question to start us off. Oh, Lord. (laughs) I'm I'm excited. What's the question? What's the thought? What you think, girl? Okay. What, What made you get into teaching in the first place? What was your path to saying, yes, I will be a teacher of the children? (laughs) Teacher of the other people's children. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it... It was the teaching of the other people's children, which were my parents. <laughs> so my parents' children. So as a you know, as the oldest of three, um, I was often tasked with like in the summers, let's go to Walgreens and we'll get the workbooks, or we'll go to you know, I don't know if it was Barnes and Noble then. I don't think that that was a thing when I was a kid in the '80s. But um, it was like you know, there was some place my mom would go and buy these like math workbooks and science workbooks and it was my job to in the summers to like make sure everyone was doing what they needed to do and and I think it was like that was like the very first kind of thinking that maybe that's what that I was something I might be interested in um I think if we all look back at like what we did when we were like eight nine ten it's like a really true due north of who we would become like if we just if we could return to what interested us then I think there's like something that's true of our core um, in terms of like purpose and drive that that lives there. So I think that for me, the earliest was like those memories of my sisters. What about you? I had a re- I had a very early declaration that I would be a music teacher. I think I was ten, and I wrote it in a notebook, and I still have that notebook. And it's hard, like listening to you talking. I can't really remember 
I can't really remember what made me decide that this is what I wanted to do, but I do know that growing up I went to really small Christian schools that didn't have very big music programs, and that in some ways I felt like I was missing out on like what I would have gotten if I went to public school in that area. And so from even a young age, I remember thinking like, I want, I want to play music and I want to teach music and I want to teach in a big program or I want to teach in a school that's very different from the school that I grew up in. That's so cool. Yeah, no, I don't think for me, I don't think I came back to the idea of like teaching as like real profession until I was in undergrad. I majored in English and then... My ex-husband was still needed more time to finish school. I was walking through this building one day. There was an ad for a fellowship that was like a one-year fellowship that was completely paid for. And at the time, I really thought I wanted to be an attorney. So I was getting ready to like apply to law school. Didn't necessarily think I would be living in Louisiana, so didn't want to get a law degree from a school in Louisiana. They have a special code of law in Louisiana still that's different from everywhere else. Um, and so, yeah, so if you if you pass that bar, you're not necessarily trained to pass other bars because they still follow Napoleonic law. This is like random things that I know. What? <laughs> also, you would be a great lawyer. <laughs> random things that I know. Yeah. Um, and so I saw that and I was like, well, you know, he needs more time. I guess it's like I could teach anywhere. It's a useful kind of like back pocket thing to have. And so I, I applied and I got in and it was really, really hard. Like it wasn't I, I don't know if I thought teaching would be an easy thing, but the grad program was really hard. We taught during the day, like full-time team teaching during the day. And then in the evening, it was we were studying with curriculum theorists. So it was it was very much so about like the oh, so many centuries of theory around who we teach and how we teach and why we teach it and when we teach it and, and what we want want people to to kind of walk away with from what we give them and teacher as facilitator. It was just such a rich, a rich grad experience. And then I discovered that I enjoyed it. Like it was, it made me feel like I was, I don't want to say like standing in purpose, but because I feel like that sounds kind of cliche, but I felt like I, sh I shined there. Mm. And so that was that. What about you? Well, I, I think it's interesting to hear you say that because having worked with undergraduate education majors, I noticed that, and maybe this is because in music education, a lot of students who are really successful in school music aren't necessarily going to make great teachers mm -hmm. and people who find themselves coming to music ed later um it's for the reasons that you said they've realized when they step into those roles they're actually very gifted in those spaces and I think that's the hard thing when you're teaching when you're when you're going into education for a specific subject because you're good at that subject it doesn't mean you're going to be a good teacher of that subject and I think that's hard. I see that happen with undergraduates coming into programs and realizing, oh, the teaching part of this, I actually don't shine in. But I do remember, um, so I went to Temple University, which I was very much against because I was scared of North Philly, mm -hmm. to be honest. I was mm -hmm. just scared of it. It seemed overwhelming to me and very different from where I grew up. And I remember we went, there was like a student for a day, um, shadow where you could go you could shadow students and then they had this talk with all of the potential students and I remember one of the professors at the time gave this really incredible speech and he said when people come into our program there are just students then there are really good students and he said then there are future teachers and the future teachers 
walk in on day one and they are an educator. And I remember being like on fire. Like, and that's just, me. Yes. I was like, <laughs> I want to teach the children how to make music. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, and I just always felt that way. I, I, from day one, I was like, I, I thrive being with kids. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I do think that there is a magic to teaching. I think that, to your point, like there are people who have specialized like content um, expertise and that that very rarely actually translates to phenomenal teaching and it and I think it also begs the question of like what makes for a phenomenal teacher you know it's, it's, we've been teaching now for I mean for me it's been almost 20 years and and I've come across a lot of really just fantastic teachers mm-hmm. um, but I don't think that teaching is always something that lives in a, in a it definitely it, it definitely doesn't always live in a school building like you know like so many of the cornerstones of progress in our country have been tied to the leadership of good teachers and and that's actually that's another sidebar conversation mm-hmm. about how much how much more we need good teachers in leadership positions but I think that it begs the question of like what makes for a phenomenal teacher um, so what do you think? What makes what it makes for a really an amazing teacher? What should we be like, you know, look cultivating in teachers, celebrating in teachers? I thought about this question a lot. I did a so when I was doing my PhD at Temple, I shadowed a professor there who's a friend of mine. His name is Scott Shaw. I'm gonna shout out him. Um, he's in Michigan now. He's not in Philly anymore. And he taught um, a course called Guerrilla Altruism. And I remember he does such cool stuff um, in general. He was an architecture professor. But I remember watching him and the way he moved throughout the room and thinking, this is an incredible teacher at work. And how do I codify this? How do I extract what he's doing into language and kind of pinpoint what's happening and what I realized if I had to boil it down and I've thought about this since since I've been in his classroom is there is um, a flexibility that Mm -hmm. happens Mm -hmm. so he was very quick to adjust and adapt to whatever was going on in his room he celebrated every person in his space Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that was so obvious by the way he grouped students together and you could tell there were there were students there who would not have been celebrated, and he found ways to celebrate them. It was very clear what he was doing, even if it wasn't clear to the other students. As an educator, I could kind of see mm-hmm. into his brain. Um, and he he really inspired. And I think by inspired, just by asking questions and really getting students outside of the world of the classroom. And so for me, yeah, creating a sense of openness, um, being really flexible, and being people-centric. I'm sure you've been around teachers who don't seem to enjoy human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to you have to genuinely love people to want to spend every day with sometimes really hard to love people and be willing to show up and find what's special about them, find their brilliance and celebrate their brilliance. Totally completely agree. And as I listen to you, I think that and reflecting on the teachers who have who have inspired me, like even going back to childhood, and so I, we should, we should definitely like I want to hear like who your favorite teacher was. Mm. Um, but I think that good teachers for me are able to model vulnerability. Like I think that you know good teaching is about learning is about um, an exchange in a way that feels really authentic and transparent. And I think that it's it's the pressure lies on the teacher to lead in the modeling of like how to be 
how to be vulnerable. And so I think that there's a, and sometimes that's through language, sometimes that's through like body language. It doesn't always have to be spoken, but I think that a good teacher is able to to give give that off so that mm-hmm. it, the space feels safe and, and reciprocal. And then I think really phenomenal teachers are ultimately good storytellers. You know, you talked about mm-hmm. like classrooms need to be, learning spaces need to be human centric. And I think that one of the most beautiful ways that we can connect as humans is through stories. And I think that good teachers make everything from math to physics to you know the history of the world feel like a longer accessible narrative and mm-hmm. i think that that's what what good teachers do and i think the third thing that good teachers do is they have really clear expectations i think that you know they know how to modulate those expectations according to like a vibe according to like an individual according to a group you know like they know how to how to encourage people and inspire them to keep reaching you know to keep to keep giving their best you know on the days when i felt like i was really being like a bomb ass teacher it was because on that day i felt like everyone in that room was in was in one conversation striving to show up hmm. and and i think that when everyone is striving to show up with whatever they have that day then we we're in a good place where like we're all we're just moving together and that's for me is what's been some of the most incredible teaching experiences when we're like you know just being ourselves but being together. And you're facilitating it. I mm-hmm. think that's the main thing as a teacher. You don't necessarily provide all the content, but you facilitate the culture. And I was just listening to another podcast um, interviewing the writer of The Art of Gathering. I can't think of her name right now, but she was talking a, a lot about how, as facilitators, how we create culture and facilitation. And it made me think a lot about teaching and just our classroom spaces and how you can walk into every classroom in the school it's the same kids but it feels completely different and as a teacher you are the person who has to try and facilitate whatever culture you want and that's through setting expectations all of that now i'm also thinking about um there's so many things we could talk about with this teaching fails right so you're saying you've been teaching for almost 20 years this is my 14th year teaching and if I met someone when I first started teaching who said they were teaching for 14 years, I would be like, oh my Ooh, gosh, you're, you're so old. <laughs> <laughs> and then also, like, that'll never happen. I just nev- never imagined myself getting there, and it happens so fast. Yeah, it's like life so much. It's yeah. such a, such, so true of life. Um, so I want to hear about you as a new teacher. When you first started, girl, what you were like. I taught for the first time in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I was I was actually 20 the first time I started teaching. I was a sub a, a long-term sub for a a woman who had been like my supervising teacher. She was pregnant and she left and then there I was at 20 with seniors. They were 18. 20. 20. I was 20 and that that first class, I mean I was just finishing up my I finished undergrad by when I was 20. So maybe I was 21. I finished undergrad when I was 21. And um and so they were 18 and some of them were 19 and there was it was there were some awkward moments in that room let me tell you there was some creepy behavior and I was just like Lord let me get through this and not have to hurt nobody, um, <laughs> <laughs> but the real first teaching I would say the the thing that felt like that felt strange. Uh, just because there was no age gap. I think the first thing that felt like a failure was my first actual teaching position. I was teaching at a, a magnet school for gifted kids. That's like Louisiana separates out schools for kids who are identified as gifted. So in some ways, while the state does a lot of things wrong, there's some ways that they maybe they get that right. 
um, it created some challenges. There was a gifted magnet program in a regular public school. So there were neighborhood kids and then there were gifted kids and the gifted kids came from all over, right? Like that magnet draws. Like that's to say that it's a magnet school means it literally was like drawing together these kids from all over East Baton Rouge Parish. And so I had I had a couple of kids in my gifted program, my gifted class. They took all gifted classes. I was teaching seventh grade, eighth grade English. Um, they were neighborhood kids. Mm-hmm. And it was really difficult for them as black kids. I should be even more specific. The school was in a predominantly black neighborhood. The gifted program was predominantly white and predominantly mm-hmm. Asian. Not not many. There was definitely some some black kids who were identified as gifted, many of whom I still stay in touch with today, which I think is just absolutely remarkable. Shout out to Lajarde and Paul. <laughs> hey, y'all. Um, and one of those kids, um, he, and I'm like, now that, that, now that like, you know, I can't like say his name because they can be like, oh, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But he really, he was very resentful of me. Mm -hmm. Like, I think I thought as a young black teacher that it would be like this automatic kind of vibe based on race and based on just, you know, a shared experience. And he, I was, I was maybe at that point 22 and he just completely rejected me. He thought I was just, he literally just like, you're an Oreo. Like you're not really, he was basically saying like, you're not real. You're not really, you're not really seeing my reality. I don't identify with you. And he was very resentful. And, and yeah. Oreo. Yeah. It's like black on the outside, white on the inside. Right. I've not heard that before oh yeah that's like a a a 90s to i mean it was like it was a term and it was a way of saying that like you as a black person you're not really black you're not really black you don't really understand you know our perspective you don't you're not really one of us and i think that he didn't i did i almost said his name i think that he didn't (laughs) identify with me probably maybe it was because i was from the north maybe it was because of the way that i spoke i didn't have a you know i don't know but that felt like a failure to me like i felt like I want, he was so smart, he was so angry, and I really wanted to be able to to establish something that felt meaningful with him, like I did with everybody else. And, mm-hmm. and at that time, in my 21, 22-year-old teaching identity, I felt like it was a fail, so. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting that you're saying what's a fail to you is not making a connection. Yeah, you know, but, because I think we're we're at least in my experiences, we're bred to believe that fails you'll get lesson plan fails. Like you're going to mess up teaching this thing. Yes. And it's never that. It is failures of connection that stick with us. I think that I think for a lot of excellent teachers, I think that that is we understand that you can't be a good teacher if there is if there's a failure of connection. Mm-hmm. Like then nothing it falls flat, right? That's a part of it. Like that's a major part of 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 I don't know giving something yeah um yeah and for me in particular I think the failure was that I really I really and it still is a it's a core drive for me I really want to I want to inspire black people I want to inspire people of color broadly like that's a that's a a, that's a pain point for me it's something I identify with have always identified with and his rejection of me in that space in that moment felt deeply personal Mm -hmm. and so it just I remember just, you know, 21, you're still a kid. You know, your brain's not fully developed. As a 21-year-old, I was just like, man, I just, I'm failing. Yeah. Yeah. I felt that way, too. I, I can think back on some interactions I had with students in my first couple of years where I had to apologize to them because of how I spoke to them. And I think my biggest issue with, you know, where we teach now at Lower Moreland outside of Philly, this is my first job and this is still my job. You know, I came here right out of college. So I was 22. 
I remember a kid in my guitar class was like, I'm turning 21 this year and thinking, what? How am I a year older pretending to be, you know, wearing my button downs and my khakis and pretending like I know what I'm doing? It was so weird. You were buttoned down in khakis. I don't, I don't remember that. I tried to look old. <laughs> you tried to look a man. And I looked dumpy. <laughs> I also, okay, this is kind of a side note. This is really funny. Um, do you think of me as someone who would have long fake nails? Girl, no. <laughs> right. You had long fake nails? I, so, you no. remember you remember our colleague and dear friend of mine, Jess Willow. Yes. She was another music teacher. I remember coming to the first faculty meeting and just thinking, I look like I'm 12. Mm. No one is going to take me seriously. How do I look older? And I remember Jess was sitting next to me and she had her nails done and I'm like I gotta get my nails hilarious. done <laughs> yeah I thought like I gotta get my nails done which by the way that's I'm gonna, gonna get... take me over I'm gonna get grown <laughs> <laughs> that's how the kids will respect me. yes yes uh so <laughs> this is so cringy like to think back just because I was so insecure and I um first of all I'm a guitar teacher you cannot have fake nails when you're a guitar teacher it doesn't work so I got my nails done, and I remember I picked up my friend from college and who knew me really well. Like, she knew who I was. She knew me. She gets in the car, looks at my hands on the steering wheel, and says, shut up, and gets out of the car. Wow. She was like, who are you? <laughs> this is disgusting. <laughs> not that having fake nails no, is no, disgusting, no, but no, she was no. just like, like you are trying yeah. too hard. What's happening? Um, and so I never got them done again. They fell off. It was fine. But... I think, like, that for me is a metaphor of my first year teaching, is me being like, how do I how do I be a 10-year teacher, a 10th-year teacher my first year? And I just wasn't. And you can't be. You have to learn on the job. You have to grow. But I do remember times with students where I was trying to be tough and I was trying to be macho and I was being mean. And in my mind, these tall, six-foot, you know, 17-year-old boys could handle it. I thought of them as adults. Right. And they weren't. They were kids. And so I may I remember making a a kid cry in my office. And he just said to me like, "Why are you so mean to me?" Mm. And it really hit me cuz I thought like I'm not a mean person. I didn't think I was, but I realized, yeah, I'm trying to you know, use this authority to make myself feel like I'm in control and really I'm just hurting kids. So that was kind of a big wake-up call for me. Yeah, I think that um, I think good teachers are are humble. I think that that's what makes for a great teacher. Like you know, I w I think I was really lucky that in grad school, so much of my learning about the the art of teaching, and I definitely think of teaching as an art, was about being reflective. And I think that that's one of the best things that my teaching program gave me was that, um, and I don't even know if program is the word. Just like my teacher education gave me was that. We're supposed to look back and we're supposed to recalibrate and we're supposed to, you know, to do some remixing where we need to and across all the roles and all the spaces that we occupy as 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 teachers. It's interesting. I keep saying it's interesting. I need to not do that. <laughs> it's fascinating. <laughs> um, it You talk about being reflective. I don't know that that's every teacher's experience. It's absolutely not. And I just had a meeting yesterday with a potential author who – 
wants to write a resource for music educators about how to be reflexive and reflective on their teaching practice because she said, we don't learn it in our undergraduate mm-hmm. education. We learn how to perfectly teach music, but there is so little focus on the teacher identity and the teacher identity development. And I think that's why teachers burn out so quickly because so much of the job is is more than content and curriculum. And I think a lot of teacher prep programs don't do enough justice for the teacher themselves. And so the fact that you had that is really important. Yeah, I, I it was it was incredibly really helpful. Um, and it was helpful for me to learn about theory because it's been so it's like translated to so many different of my of my own identities as they're emerging professionally. I think that the other thing that that I think teacher programs, teacher training, preparation um, situations fail at getting people to understand is that to say that you're a teacher, one, I don't think that there is enough, and this is cultural, this is American culture, there isn't enough of a, of a real thinking about honoring what it means to be a teacher so that, so that I don't think that we're, as Americans, trained to think about how incredible teachers are. And I think that part of that is tied to gender. I think because it's a, a field that's so predominantly um, populated by women that it, it just doesn't, is you know, just that trickle down of that patriarchy and that sexism and that misogyny, that teachers don't get the praise that they deserve or that they get in other cultures. And I think that in from the perspective of being the teacher, I think looking back to being 19, 20, 21, when I was learning what it was, quote unquote, to be teacher, I don't think that it was explicit enough to me that to be teacher meant that you were going to be nurse and cheerleader and social worker and, um, you know, therapist and, you know, co-creator and, you know, all of the things that to be a teacher is. And I think that that contributes to burnout is because we don't we we work with uh, so many families that don't have a whole lot of um, deep regard for what we aspire to offer their children. Um, and I think that the other thing is that we we get drained because we we're not taught to really just settle into the fact that, you know, to be teachers, to be 18 things at once mm-hmm. to, to 25. You know, I, I'm usually you and I both have taught in classes where there were 50 young people. Yes. And so sometimes you're being 18 things to 50 young people in a rotation. And I think that that, if you you just conceptualize it that way, I think we can see why it's so challenging for teachers to persevere as long as we have. Yeah. My friend, Victoria Bowler, who's also a music educator, talks about how teachers are values-based people in general. And with this pandemic, we're seeing it because so many teachers are being asked to do things that we would not ask other folks to do in other industries. But because we care so deeply about children and their education, it's very hard for teachers to just walk away and say, nope, I'm going to quit. I'm actually not doing this. I'm going to go somewhere else. And I think it is easy to take advantage of people who are doing it for reasons other than they might be doing work in another field if they're doing the work because they love the people. And not that this is the only values-based industry or the only values-based group of people, but normally if you get into teaching, it is because you care deeply about people and children and their education. And so it's hard when you're not respected or taken advantage of or fill in the blank to walk away from what you feel like is a deep calling. I think that's the same for any of my, my friends who are in any way, and are, so many of my friends identify as activists, they are activists. And I think that for people who are working in the work, 
of systems change that that that's a similar kind of struggle you know like how do i defend that i that my work has worth how do i stop showing up and and talking for free how do i how do i participate in in change and changing these systems and at the same time not be a martyr and not sacrifice my own needs for the sake of the work mm-hmm. and and i do think that that is definitely the position of folks who are who are committed to the the harder the harder things which are all about the best thing you know like yeah. the best things I want to talk about you specifically at the school that we're at. We're at a predominantly white school, um, predominantly white, meaning everyone but you, staff. <laughs> um, no, there's some there's yeah. some aides that are black, and yes. there's some there's the, the cleaning crew is black, and the the lawns crew is predominantly black. It's just you know I'm the only faculty of member of color. Yeah, these, these are facts. Like this is not this isn't a criti- You know, it is a criticism. But, it's important the, but to bring it up. wasn't intended to be a criticism. Yeah. It was just like a, hey, y'all, this is what it is. Yeah. This is where you are seeing color. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember using, you talked about being that, that first faculty meeting when you were envying Jess's Cardi B inspired nails. Before Cardi <laughs> I don't know B. if it was Cardi B. <laughs> um, yeah. I remember going to that first faculty meeting and being like, wow, I am actually the only person of color in this room. Isn't this something? How did that feel? It's, it felt shitty. I mean, it was just like, I mean, and I don't know that shit is even the right word. It, it definitely felt complicated, you know, like, um, you know, just like you said, you know, when we're, as young people, we're still figuring out in relative to other people, how do we navigate space? How do we navigate relationship building? And sometimes we all enjoy the privilege of being invisible. And when you're the only person of color, there's no invisibility. Mm. And, and that means like when I am there, people notice when I'm not there, people notice you know, like it, it, it becomes a hyper visibility. That's that's the thing about being the only right. The, the only woman, the only, you know, the only open thing where you can't just tuck it away in your inside your shirt. Right. Mm-hmm. You can put your cross away. You can put your star David away when you're, you know, being a person of color, being a woman. You can't tuck that. You can't hide that. And that becomes, you know, it's for, and, and actually and even then, like I even in knowing it I, and even to say that it felt shitty, it was just like this sucks. It would be nice to be able to to have an, another point of, another voice in the room that shared my perspective, that part specifically felt shitty. Um, but I've, I've always kind of, I don't know, I don't I don't shy away from attention. I've never really shied away from attention, so. <laughs> there's also so that. I kind of love it now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's also that. But no, I, I do think that, um, I do think that that was definitely it, and it continues to be, um, I don't know. It's just it's just challenging. It's just mm-hmm. challenging to 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 be living just by being. Um, I don't know. Always feeling like I don't know who else is who else sees this the way that I do. Who else cares about this the way that I do? Um, who else has you know some skin in the game? Do you know what you're bringing back a memory from me as a student when I was entering ninth grade? Went to small Christian school, but it was very uh, racially diverse. Yeah, and. I think something like 40% of my graduating class um, were students who were black or brown, mm-hmm. um, which in that area was not typical. Um, in, in the, As in that that was high. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. 
because it's the suburbs. Mm-hmm. It's kind of close to where we teach now. So mm-hmm. it's not the demographics in that area were not that different. But this school was a private school, so people were coming kind of from all over. And I remember I was getting the school tour before my ninth grade year by an upperclassman, and she was introducing me to the new teachers, and we had two black male teachers were hired the year that I was a freshman. Hmm. And I remember her saying to me in the hallway while she gave me the, the tour, she was like, thank goodness they finally started hiring some black teachers in here. And I remember thinking, like, is that a thing? Is that – it just it wasn't something that crossed my mind because up until that point I had never had a black teacher all of my teachers were white. I'm also white. The majority of the kids I went to school with up until that point were white. It wasn't something I thought about, obviously. But hearing her talk about it and just knowing that for some students in my school, like, yeah, that meant a lot to them yep. to have that representation. And so I'm thinking about you, you know, I know a few years back you started a group with some of the students Um and you've said already in this conversation that this is something you're passionate about. So what does it mean for you with the, the students that we do have who are brown students and who feel – I don't even know I don't know how, how it feels. I, yeah, I think it feels lots of different ways for, for yeah. them in different ways. Um, and, and, and in truth now, the, the focus of my, of my, my, my energy direction – is in other things you know Mm -hmm. now I don't feel burdened I don't feel like it's my burden to show up in this space in this way yeah um and I think for a long time I did feel that way I did feel like as the only member of faculty or or one of at one point there was another woman who was a person of color that it was kind of like incumbent upon us to feel to do that work and now I just don't feel that way I feel like I do a lot of work in lots of places in lots of ways and so I've relinquished that that's the work I'm going to do here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still think that there's a lot of other ways that for me I show up for the for the larger, um, you know, I don't know, push. Just in, you know, how I, what I teach and how I teach and how I approach the teaching of it. And for me that's enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm excited for other people to figure out how, what their lane is going to be for doing that work because yeah. it's it's not just as the and this is why I think that being the only member of faculty that's a person of color has been this is one of the reasons why it's been draining is because it oftentimes feels like why do I have to be the one to lead the, the diversity council why is that on why is that my what what the nobody you know like y'all have to be uncomfortable figure it out give it a try fail and I think that that I'm really now I'm just like yeah I'm not I'm not shouldering that so uh, those those kids and they know me and hopefully they feel safe and they reach out when they need me. But in terms of like an organized effort, nah, other people need to step up. And that's like a general kind of, you know, reflection on the state of things, right? Mm-hmm. Like it can't be just people of color in schools, in, in corporate offices, in hospitals, leading the work of, of meaningful, um, you know, meaningful expansion. Like white folk have to it's it, the the problem is, and I read this quote somewhere. It's, it's not that um, a couple things came up in my mom's house, and it came up on something I saw on, on on Instagram, I think. But it's it's not that that white that black people need or people of color need white people to feel badly. It's that we need you all to see that the problem of racism is not our problem it's your problem mm-hmm. and so if it's going to you it's cre- it benefits it was it was created by white folks it benefits white folks if it's going to change from a values 
you know, going back to the word values, a values perspective, that work has got to be the work of white folk. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to do my this is this is calling me over here, this work, this activism in this lane. And for these other lanes, I'm 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 just excited for a new crop of of enthusiastic folk to to be courageous. I think that's amazing. And it makes me think back to our conversation earlier this year during some of the more um, prominent protesting that was happening. And I was seeing a lot on social media of people saying like, stay out of, stay out of um, black people's DMs, stay out of, stop apologizing to them, stop asking them what you should be doing, stop trying to get information from them. And I remember talking to you and saying like, is that actually a problem? Is that something people are doing? And you were like, yes, it's a problem. And I think for so many of us, we, we've not only been ignorant to the issues of racism as a white people, but we've also been ignorant to um, the, the ways that we expect change to happen. And we've been ignorant to um, the responsibility on the back end, not just the front end, if that makes sense. It does make sense. And it's interesting because we don't feel that way about other things. Like when I think about generational stuff, <laughs> we all have generational stuff from our families, right? And we'll all be like, oh, my grandfather was this way or, um, you know, my dad was an alcoholic and so I am not, I am going to actively fight against that, right? But when it comes to racism for some reason, we take this mindset that like, well, that was two generations removed, so it doesn't involve me. I'm, and I think I have a theory as to why that is. I think it's because to acknowledge that it involves you is to say that you need to sacrifice something to change it. Mm-hmm. And I think that the harder work is to really be thinking about what does that sacrifice look like in my neighborhood, in my house, on my block, in my workspace. And I think that that's a lot that that feels I, I mean, and as a per, as a non-white person, I feel from a human perspective that that's ha- that will be hard. That because that would be where it's like it's not just about the words about <clears throat> recognizing that <clears throat> excuse me that change is important. It's recognizing that the change that needs to happen is the change you need to do, and that oftentimes means that there's something that you're going to have to let go of. And and I think that rather that's like okay, people are going to be encouraged to vote. How will that shift power dynamics? Okay, people are going to be encouraged to pay more taxes so that there's a better redistribution of wealth. Okay, what that sounds interesting. People deserve to have decent public education, so that means we're going to have to have some meaningful integration and maybe have to deal with the struggle of cultural divisions and you know approaches to things like volume and dress and language. That sounds like it's going to be hard to do, and I think that that's that's where the will, that's where that's where the change will come from is when there's like a a recognition that change requires a giving up. Mm. Can, things can't get better if no one changes and if no one gives up anything. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't work that way. And I think that the, the longer history of like, my father did this thing that was really problematic. It's like, I felt that. I mm. felt his alcoholism. I felt his absence. I felt his violence. And I think that the deeper human work, human level consciousness, soul work is, even if I don't, I don't necessarily feel that poverty. I don't feel that isolation, that marginalization, that, that um, those I don't feel those barriers. I recognize that they're there, and I recognize that they're unfair, and that they're sh- that they are that they have that they 
democracy doesn't work as long as they are protected. Mm-hmm. I mean, and then it becomes like, do we care about democracy? Is that what we really what we, do? We care about you know the home of the free and the brave. Is that who we? And if it and if we're not that, that's a much deeper um, soul quest for the heart of the country. And. It's interesting because we're talking about teaching. Our classrooms are microcosms. Like our classrooms are spaces where we get to encourage, model, facilitate, whatever you want to call it, how people work together and how people are in community and what that looks like. And, you know, there's been a lot of uh, research and writing in music education specifically about the importance of democracy in music education because if you look at our large ensemble tradition, there has been a tradition of what we could call dictatorships where it's the sage on the stage, it's I hold the baton, you do what I say, I am in charge, I'm making all of the creative decisions, and you are just doing my will. And we see that in music all across the country. Um, and there are a lot of folks who are trying to fight against that and saying this is not how we should be in our this should not be the main way that we deliver music education and what does it look like to have a democratic process to run a classroom based on the principles of democracy and to really give students a voice in a way that is powerful and can be life-changing and so um, I, that's why I think teachers are so amazing and why our calling is so incredibly important, more so than we can imagine, because every time we are modeling how we interact with students and how we set expectations or celebrate students or give students a voice, we're modeling what we think the world should look like when they leave school. And they're going to get a range of experiences in different classrooms. And it's, yeah, it could be a missed opportunity for us if we're not aware of that. It is a missed opportunity. And I really hope that teacher prep programs in the future are thinking about, you know, who's who are in the programs. The same way we think about what I hope is my the hope for policing, right? I hope that we do a better job as we think about identifying, recruiting people to enter into these professions that have so much power, ultimately that we really are thinking about doing some some metric for a deep dive into values because the last thing that this country needs more of are teachers who are harboring deep levels of racism and sexism and homophobia and Islamophobia and transphobia and all of those phobias. Like we really need to do a better job of, of weeding that out because that's not what's for the good of the safety of, of children and it's not good for the future of the country. Mm-hmm. So I am curious, you know, as we as we wrap up this this episode of school for disruptors what do you think we should be telling the kids about teaching if i was saying this to my students directly (laughs) if i got a chance to just tell them what i think about teaching i think something they might not realize is how much of them we take home with us Mm. that when we and you know everyone's experience is different but I think a lot of teachers feel this way, is that we care deeply about the kids who enter our space and we think about them and we strategize about how best to help them. And, you know, the student you talked about in the beginning that you felt like you didn't reach, you still remember that. That is a vivid memory because of that misconnection. And and so I, I think maybe 
I want the kids to know that we're human too. (laughs) And that teaching requires a great bit of empathy and patience and that students could also think about what it means to practice empathy and patience with the people who are trying to guide them as well. And and I need to remember that too, even in my life, like the teachers in my life, w- how much they're pouring into me and how easy it is to be the one poured into and to assume that you could do it better instead of receiving all that is coming at you, right? And 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 giving a little empathy to that person who is trying to teach you. Yeah, I, I really appreciate how you talked about teaching and framing it in terms of um, the student and teacher re- relational dynamic. Um, I would like to approach this idea of what we tell the kids about teaching from the perspective of people who are thinking about becoming teachers or who are who are in love with teachers or you know like the people who are relating from a, a different perspective with the work of teaching. And I, I really think that I would I think we should be telling those people, those people who are who are aspiring to be better teachers in their own lives, right? Like as so many of us are, whether we're parents or we're siblings or we're um, doing the work of some deeper activism, right? And that and we we whether we realize it or not, most of us are teachers, y'all. Most of us are teachers. I I think that I hope that we tell the kids about teaching that it is the greatest of the oldest arts. <laughs> And that because it is the greatest of the oldest arts, um, I hope that we we remind each other that we should be approaching the care of teachers with a with a, a deep sense of reverence, um, remembering our favorite teachers and what they gave to us, what they aspired to give to us, um, and that we should be thinking about how do we do a better job of of protecting of protecting teachers and standing in solidarity with teachers um, because teachers are so, so important to, to all of our systems and, and, to, who, and to who we are. So yeah, we, we're, we're all teachers, y'all. We all have, there's always a capacity that we could do a, a little bit of a better job of, of being a little bit of a better teacher. So I hope that we remember that, um, that we, to tell the kids that they are teachers too. Mm-hmm. Love you. Love you. Until next time. Yes. Until next time. The School for Disruptors is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, produced and edited by us with music from Laura O'Shea. You can catch up with O'Shea on Instagram at It's Pronounced O'Shea, and you can also catch us there at School for Disruptors, or send us an email, schoolfordisruptors at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.